You're listening to the Team Guru Podcast, bringing to life the theory and principles of leadership. Have you ever wondered what it's like to be on a board? A serious board, KPMG serious. What does it take? What does a career look like on the way to a role like that? Hello and welcome to episode 85 of the Team Guru podcast. My name's David Frizzell and you're about to hear my conversation with Alison Kitchen, the national chairman of KPMG. Alison has been with the organization for 35 years. 35 years. Can you imagine? We talk about her early years in the firm, the progress she made, and I ask her about the early signs that she was a star in the making. We talk about women in professional services, the changing nature of gender equality since the early 1980s. We talk about what it takes to be a senior executive and a member of a board. Alison delivers some gold standard wisdom in this conversation. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Alison Kitchen, welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. Thank you, David. It's a pleasure to be here. Alison, you have been with KPMG for 35 years. That's amazing. I'm guessing you haven't been sitting in the same cubicle for all that time. Yes, I know. People tell me you do less time for murder, so it, it is a long time. <laughs> Much and less. I, yes, and I do understand it's quite unusual these days to have a career with one organisation for all of that time. But you're absolutely right. I have had a multitude of opportunities in many different states, countries, divisions, and done many different roles over that period. And so the really interesting thing to me is that obviously from time to time, we all stop and think about what next. And every time in my career, I've done that and thought about it, even got bored from time to time with what I'm doing. I've always found that there was a new opportunity within the firm. And So, and you know, I've done a range of different things, though I've always found that I've had the luxury of trying lots of new things within the safety net of staying in one firm. So, um, absolutely, I've had lots of very different and varied experience, but all under one big umbrella. So, you, it's because KPMG is such a huge organization, it's almost as if you've had a, a few careers within the same, the same company. From the outside, your CV looks like you've been in the same, with the same mob for 35 years, but I'm imagining from what you just said, from from your point of view, there's been a whole bunch of significant changes along the way that have been enough to keep you there. So tell us a little bit, Alison, about your career and the different roles you've had. Obviously, over 35 years, there would be a huge number of different roles and, and even different locations. But give us some of the highlights about where you started, what your technical skill was at the beginning, and and where it moved from there. Okay. Well, look, if I, I should probably start at the beginning because that's a very good place to start. Yeah. So I started in the Sheffield office in the UK, which is in the north of England, in uh, about 1983. I didn't particularly have an ambition to be an accountant. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. So I'd done a, a quite a broad-based business degree at university in Sheffield, and I wanted to stay and live in Sheffield. 
after uni because it was a, I, I'd enjoyed my time there very much. 1983, uh, those of you that were alive at that time may recall, was quite a, a tough time in the UK in particular. It was um, time around uh, the miners' strike, the height of the Thatcher years, all of that stuff happening. Unemployment was about 10%, and of course mm. it was higher in the north of England. So I looked for a job in an industry, there were lots of jobs, which was quite stable. And so there were lots of jobs in the what were then known as the big eight accounting firms. And uh, so I, and, and I did, to be fair, have a number of accountants on my mother's side of the family. So <laughs> I had a little bit of holiday experience there. Yeah. So I went into that role thinking, look, it's a really safe professional qualification, which will set me up with lots of opportunities and it's safe and secure and I can use that as a platform to start. So I didn't go in. I mean, I don't think when you're 21, a lot of people aren't particularly planned about what they're going to do with their life. I mm. didn't go in thinking I was going to be there. I went in thinking I'm going to spend three years there. If I'm in order, it means I'm doing lots of different clients and learning about lots of different industries and I'm get a, going to get a really good professional qualification and then I can work out what I want to do with my life. And it turned out that one I wanted to do with my life was lots, lots of different things within KPMG. So Isn't the first it amazing? Years, sorry, yeah. Alison, it's amazing oh, that the, the context of the era, the, the state of the economy, the, the Thatcher years, the strikes, the high unemployment kind of had that impact on you that you were looking for a safe career because there were so many people around you who were unemployed and having a hard time safety, almost as if you dropped down a level or two on Maslow's hierarchy of needs and you just wanted to make sure of things. Is that the mindset as you remember it? I was in grade three that you, you started with KPMG. <laughs> I didn't have a close eye on Thatcher at the time, but in hindsight, I've understood a, a little bit about the climate. And like I was saying, it's obviously had an effect on the way you viewed the beginning of your career. Yeah. Look, Interestingly, I don't know that at that time I thought that long and hard about my career. Right. I, you know, I, I needed a job and I needed to earn a steady income. I don't know that it occurred to me that I could reach senior levels, plan more than, you know, plan for significant promotions and things. If you ask me, to be honest, when I was 21 and engaged to a medical student, I probably thought in 10 years' time I'd be. Um, in a country village with three kids and a golden retriever and um, <laughs> uh, marriage to the village doctor. And, um, you know, it's amazing that life takes you in many different directions. And um, that wasn't the case. And in many ways, gosh, I think that would have been boring. But, you know, that's a long time ago. And that mm. is what a lot of women my age back then thought and expected and wanted from their lives. And a lot of them, of course, have loved that. So it's fine. So that was sort of where I was. So I didn't even have an ambition for a career when I started. I think I literally needed a job that was going to pay for me to look after myself. So when did it start to become obvious to you that there was an opportunity for you? I mean, obviously there was an opportunity for you at that level to become an accountant in the bullpen of one of these large organizations. When did you start to realize that, hey, I might be a bit different? Because here you are 35 years down the track, you're currently the national chairman of KPMG. That's quite a significant role, quite a senior role. So there must have been signs early in your career that, hey, there's a future for me here. I, I have the opportunity to move through the ranks, to become a leader, to become a manager, to have some seniority in this organization. What were the early signs? Yeah, look, it probably took me quite a while to get there. So I did those first five years um, in the north of England, and then my husband and I wanted an adventure. And so we applied to come on a two-year transfer through my work to Australia. And 
I ended up in Perth not because I really wanted to go to Perth, but all because I really wanted to, to focus on the mining industry. But because time, my husband was a, a doctor and funnily enough, they didn't recognise English medical qualifications in New South Wales. And of course, right. we'd wanted to come to Sydney. Mm. So that's why we went to Perth. So we went to Perth and I was you know, literally just working and enjoying the role, but not really thinking about promotions for my first three, few years there. And then I really got passionate about the mining industry. Uh-huh. And then I got made a manager at KPMG and I suddenly thought, you know what, I really enjoy doing leading and getting more involved at senior levels in things. And it probably started, it was probably not till I became a manager when I was probably 28, so six years into my career, seven years into my career when I started thinking, you know what, I don't need to just look at this as something that's going to keep paying the bills. I can mm. do something exciting and I'm really loving it. So it took quite a while to get into it, but it was probably one found my passion and got into the mining industry and really felt that the more senior and the more involved I got in the industry of my clients, the more that sort of paid back in me getting new and more interesting opportunities. It That sort of really um, sparked the ambition to start doing more and different and new and putting my hand up for different things. When you think back to that almost leadership awakening that you just described, where you, you were 28, you said, hey, there's something more than just having a job here. What were some of the skills or the habits or the things that you did as a young leader that gave you some success, that helped you to resonate with your team or have quality relationships with stakeholders and clients? What were the skills that you showed that you started to become conscious of? I think a lot of it, rather than being a particular skill, was actually a passion. Mm. I found that I really, really was just inspired and and had my fascination spiked by the mining industry because it was so different. And so I really, the thing that I think worked for me as an auditor was I got passionate about the industry and really wanted to learn the business, not just think about the numbers. And that, I think, uh, made it more interesting for the teams I was working with. It also meant that my clients found me useful in a wider range of ways and actually thought it was worth talking to me as an auditor about a wider range of things. And that sort of really helped snowball success in that you create that environment and create that interest in your team and with your clients. And then in turn, they talk to you about it more and it becomes more interesting and you feel more useful and it's a, it's almost a virtuous circle. Mm. So, you know, when people are saying to me, how do I succeed? The first thing I say to them is find something you really, really care about and you really love and enjoy because I think for me, that was what helped me with Inspire My Teams and clients was actually that I really loved it and was fascinated by, by what I was seeing and experiencing. That's a brilliant answer because so often people at that stage of their career, they are not conscious of the whole leadership journey and the skills and the habits that come with being an effective leader. It's their passion for what they do that gets them started. So that's a great answer. But what about next? What about as you started to move through the organization into more senior roles, move further away, I'm guessing at some point, from the actual technical doing What type of skills and habits, knowledge did you bring on board that was specifically designed to develop yourself as a leader? Well, I think I – how do I best answer that? Um, Honestly, I I reckon. Think about this one. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. 
Yeah, no, I mean, the reason I'm hesitating a bit is uh, one of the interesting things about being in audit, which is what I do, is that even today as the chair of the firm, I still have on audit. So I am still involved in the technical details. So it all does sort of work alongside. Mm. And of course, part of the skill, I think, of becoming more senior in the sort of role and in the professional services profession where I am is striking the balance between staying close enough to your clients and your teams to be relevant to understand what they're experiencing versus being able to trust your teams and empower them enough that you can step away from the detail. Mm. And that was a lesson that was quite hard for me. I was a bit of a control freak. Right. And, and you know, I, it took a while for me to realise that it's actually, apart from the fact that I'm going to, eventually you will kill yourself by overwork if you stay a control freak as you get more serious, senior, it took me a while to realize just quite how disempowering it is for your team if you're micromanaging and second-guessing them and giving them a role to do and then checking on them every five minutes and asking them what they do. So that was, you know, it took me a while to actually sit and think, what's the impact I'm having on our people by how I'm behaving and I need to stop? That was one thing. And the other thing is, and this is a common trait in people in my profession, is a tendency towards perfectionism. Mm. And so, again, people would, you know, we'd do a piece of work as a team, a report would be drafted. I was going to sign it out under my name. And so I used to rewrite it into my own language and think about it. And then, again, you think, how disempowering is this? Yeah. That am I, am I making this better or am I just making it sound like more me. like me? Mm. And, and does Ooh. that need to be me? And, again, how disempowering and, you know, unencouraging it is to do that to somebody. And so I think, you know, it took me 30 odd years to get to this role. So perhaps I'm a slow learner, but, um, you know, I, I think I, with hindsight, I probably could have learned some of those lessons and thought about how staff were impacted quicker, which is quite interesting because I think one of the things that I've been worked really hard on, which has served me in influencing around the executive table, whether it's internally or with clients, is to not just actively listen, but when I want to get a message across, there's a massive difference between me saying what I want to say and me knowing that people will hear what I want them to hear. And so I do spend a lot of my time thinking about what's the audience actually want to hear and what do I need them to hear? And then expressing it in either their language or something that will actually appeal to them rather than, of course, when you're young and at enthusiastic and running at a million miles an hour and you've got all these great ideas or you're very clear while you're right, you want to just tell people and assume that they'll go along with your way of thinking. So I think they, they're probably a couple of my really big lessons that if, if you can spend time really thinking about something from the other person's perspective and put it into their way of thinking and make the conversation and the decision about them and their role in the outcome you're trying to achieve, then you will much better able to get your own way. Whether it's a half-day energizer session or a comprehensive team and leadership program, Team Guru's unique approach could be just what the doctor ordered for your organization. They are three great lessons. That last one in particular is is really powerful. The idea of the you know the the experience you've had as you've matured into your role and understanding the audience that you're talking about. And it's not just about you saying what needs to be said, but it's about you giving some understanding. And to give understanding is a lot different than sending a message. You need to understand the audience. 
to be able to empathize with them and hear what and know what they want to hear and how they want to hear it. That's really powerful. I really liked your first lesson as well, that idea that if you've come from a technical background, it's really hard to let go of that. And if you're not conscious about yourself as you develop as a leader, you will become a micromanager and you will disempower your staff because you're the expert in it and they're just doing it because you haven't got time to essentially, and you're going to check their work. And of course, not only does it disempower your staff, it means that you're going to die at some point because the more senior you go up to the organization, you can't keep your eye on all of the work that is done under your accountability. So they're really great lessons. And and that first one in particular is so common for people who've come from a technical area. So to Alison, I'm going to go out on a limb here. I know it's it's never safe to assume, but your name's Alison. We've chatted for a few minutes now. So I'm going to guess that you're a woman. And I'm also going to guess that KPMG and the business services industry have always, through your whole 35-year career, way back in 83, been fantastic at gender equality and treating everyone the same and giving everyone the same type of opportunities. Is that a safe assumption? So shock horror, one assumption right, yes, I'm female. Second assumption, not quite so right. Been a bit of a journey, but we've come a long way. I've spoken to a few people in the uh, resources industry, and they talk about some really stark changes in their industry in terms of the understanding of the benefits of gender equality. Can you paint a little picture for us what it was like to be in one of what we call the big four now, one of the big eight back then, as a young woman, 1983, trying to begin a career in professional services? Paint us a picture. Look, I think, well, it was obviously pretty tough, and I can give you some colour in a minute. I think I would say that it was just, it was very tough for all women in all industries then. And I went into it eyes open knowing it was going to be tough and not expecting to have to do anything other than work harder and be better to be treated the same. So, you know, when you say that now, it sounds awful and people say that's outrageous, but that's just how life was then. Mm. And you just knew that that's how life was and you accepted it and it went with the territory. So you just got on with working harder, being better and expecting that if you did both of those things, you had to be treated the same. Wow. And that was about as good as it was going to get. And that was how it was. And I never resented it because that was how it was. And, and you know, so when I joined the firm, I joined, I was one of eight graduates, two of whom were women and six were men. Of those eight graduates, uh, the six men and I passed exams and the other lady went off and became a housewife which was kind of, I suppose, fairly typical then. Mm. The interview process was quite challenging. One firm in particular had been told to interview a, a quarter of women or else they wouldn't be allowed on the university campus. And the guy never looked at me once during the whole hour. He read questions to me from his piece of paper and stared out of the window while I talked. And wow. I wished I had the confidence to walk out of his interview and complain about him, but of course I, I didn't. So, you know... That's just how it was then. And so you just got on with it. And it was interesting then because one of the things I encountered, of course, then you went out to clients when you went there and the clients behaved the same. They assumed you weren't quite good enough. So you had to work harder to prove yourself. Mm. And one of the things that was, I think, quite interesting and challenging when I was very young, I was in the north of England, the mostly heavy manufacturing clients, paper-based systems, therefore rows and rows of accounting clerks collecting debts, paying bills, paying payroll, 
mostly middle-aged women who had never had career opportunities. And, and what I found hard at the time and fascinating to look back on is often they were treated me much worse than men because it was wow. like they were jealous because uh, I had an opportunity. But they didn't. That yeah. They didn't. Mm. And, and I sincerely hope that the women my age now do that. For the younger generation, I, I would hope that we're all there to help and support. But, you know, that was quite an interesting challenge back then. But you just kind of, I didn't spend much time thinking about it, David. It's just how life was. And so I got on with it. Were there any and, senior um, women in the organization that could, if not be a mentor, at least a role model for you? When I was in the UK, there were no women partners. There were a couple of women managers who behaved as I've just described. They yeah. worked harder and performed better in order to be treated the same. Yeah. And so I copied them. I don't know that they spent much time mentoring. I think they were too busy surviving themselves, to be yeah. honest. I never, when I was in the UK, I never had one of them as a mentor. Funnily enough, I, when I came to Perth, um, the staff partner in the UK's parting shot to me was if you were serious about your career, you'd go to the US because that's a, a real work environment. Australia is a holiday place. And by the way, Australia are dinosaurs when it comes to sexism. And I never found that in Perth. I don't know if it's because it was such an entrepreneurial city mm. or whether KPMG office of, of Perth was particularly progressive. But really, I was pleasantly surprised when I came to Perth. Obviously, there were very few women leaders in a firm or in industry, but they were pretty much more receptive to treating you on a level playing field. And then, of course, you were so rare that you kind of were remembered more than the men, a slight whether it was advantage. internally or with clients. So it was a, if anything, it became a slight advantage and <laughs> I was happy to take the upside of that. So, you know, that, that was quite interesting. And then, of course, when I came to Perth, I started spending a lot of time on site and you would appreciate in the late 1980s if you went to a remote mine site in Leonora or Laverton or somewhere like that and there were 35 people on site, it was quite common to be the only female um, when you were there. But I probably didn't have to deal with the toughest aspects of that because I only ever really went to, because of the role I had, I only ever really went to site for a few days at a time. So I was more of a novelty than a, a nuisance or, so I so never really experienced anything really hard about it. Just that background expectation that you had to work harder and do better. So were there any watershed moments in, in the battle for gender equality in your industry? I mean, you're currently the national chairman of KPMG, so obviously things are, are vastly improved from where they were, as you just described them, back in the early to mid-80s. Were there watershed moments or was it just a gradual civilizing process of, of society and, and therefore the industry alongside of that? Oh, look, I think we had a few watershed moments. If I reflect on probably my first big break, we had um, a wonderful previous national chairman, gentleman called Doug Jukes, who his last management role was to set up our markets practice when we'd never had a markets practice before. And he, he was just a very forward thinking man. So he rang me out the blue and said, I'm setting up a markets business. I need someone to focus on the mining industry and every win that I come across in the industry has got your name on it. So you're obviously the right person for the job, take it on. And that was a big thing because I was the only female in his team. I was the only person outside uh, Sydney or Melbourne in his team running a national practice. I was 40, all the others were probably 50. And so, you know, that was a really groundbreaking moment for me personally, but that was his style of leadership and he was in a very senior role. 
And then he became our national chairman and brought that same thinking to the board. So I do think one of the things which does bring about significant change is having leaders that have vision and a passion and the courage to see change through. So he had a massive impact on me personally, but I also think on advancing the cause of of being more, more open to gender equality in particular and diversity of thinking way before his time because I took on that national mining role in 2000 or 2001, I can't remember which now, so a long time ago. It's so often the yeah. story that it takes just one person in the right spot at the right time to be forward thinking, to be a bit different, to not be shackled by the norms of the time. And you've just described yours, Doug Jukes. I was going to ask you about people in your career who, when you look back on it, they had a huge impact, whether that it was a big break that they gave you or the right mentoring at the right time in your career. You just described one, and I'm assuming that that would be one of the more powerful moments in your career. Are there any others? Are there any other big breaks or people who had had a really in, a really powerful influence on you? Yeah. Well, I, look, I think to get where I am, you need a mix of um, of ability and, and luck and a whole lot of other things. So. <laughs> Yes, there've been several. I mean, Doug gave me my first big management break in making me the head of mining. A few years later, he became the national chairman. And again, ahead of his time, rang me up and said, okay, we need a woman on our board. And the board of KPMG is chosen by election of the partners. And so you need to be known to the partners. And he said, you're the only woman with a, a national profile. So I need you to stand. And I am denied and said, look, I can't do that. I'm too young. I'm in Perth. And he basically said, just toughen up and do it. And I stood for election and, and got nominated. So he gave me two big breaks. I would say one of my other really early lessons for me, funnily enough, was when I stepped into the head of mining role, he took a big punt on me. And the first thing I needed was some help because I had plenty of people who were hoping that I wouldn't succeed. <laughs> and a lady working in the Perth office just made, came past my desk and said, I understand you're looking for a, a manager to help you. Would you consider me for the role? And I didn't know what I needed, except that I needed help. And so I said, yes. And, um, you know, that was an incredible partnership because I was had a strong background in audit and in mining and in technical skills. And Helen was our marketing manager and had a psychology background. And so you know, we were obviously both female, but that diversity of thought mm. and completely different skill sets and approach. Polar opposites was just an, um Yeah, but it was an amazing partnership. You know, I think about some of the things we had to work through while I was learning those influencing skills and, and getting in other people's heads and things. I would just have so many ideas and want to bulldoze through. And she was so good at the different thinking. And so, you know, that complementary skill set we just fed off each other with complete coming at things from completely different angles and, and worked out the power of that. And so that's really been a lot of my passion now for not just gender diversity, which of course is important to me, but genuine diversity of thought and, you know, all different skill sets need to be brought to the table. And, and if somebody's coming at something from left field, then don't wait for the gap in their talking to shut them up, actually stop and really listen to them. So that was another really, I think, important early break and lesson to me. What else? I've had a few more, I'm sure. Do you want team and leadership development programs that actually work? 
Contact Team Guru today so we can start the conversation. Look, I loved so much of what you just said then, that actual diversity of thought. That's so powerful. And and we all know that conceptually, but to really understand what it looks like and the power of it when it comes to getting work done and having new ideas and, and making breakthroughs, it's so important. And I also love the little pointer that you just made there to being a quality listener. So often we fall into the trap of simply waiting for the person to take a breath so we can jump in and have our say. And so often we are sitting and not listening, but just drafting what we want to say. It sounds like such a low-level micro skill, but it's actually one of the most powerful skills that you can have. And you just hinted there that it's one of the things that you value. I do. And that's probably because I'm still working really hard on it, David. It's very easy to slip back in to just keep muttering along and, and railroading. So you have to keep reminding yourself. So there are probably two lessons. I think one of the other lessons, of course, I've learned is that is to get more confident at having a go. And, and look, I used to be unbelievably shy and retiring and would um, never put myself forward for anything. And really, when Doug asked me twice to step up and I did step up and I made a success of it, it then actually did give me confidence to say, look, you know, I can put my hand up. And what I really work hard on, and I talk to other women about this a lot, is if you're really worried about giving something a go, try and think, what's the worst thing that can happen here? Because usually the worst thing that can happen from having a go, whether it's a promotion or a new skill, is that it's not brilliant. And then, you know, you don't get the job or you don't get the opportunity. But if you don't have a go, you guarantee that you've got no chance of success. And so that's usually when I have to make a big decision of, you know, I've perhaps had a stumble because I've had plenty in my career and I've gone back into my shell for a while and hidden in the bunker and said, okay, I'm just going to, you know, everyone's looking at me. They probably all think I'm a failure. The first lesson is, no, they're not. They're actually busy just trying not to fail themselves. And so they're mostly not taking any notice of you at all. And your ego is actually over big if you think people are looking at you. (laughs) Um, You know, that was a good lesson for me. And then actually just reminding myself, okay, if you don't have a go, then you're guaranteed that you won't succeed at it. So have a go. And, And that, you know, that's again, there's been, you know, even last year when I ran for the election process to be the national chairman, that was that I had to talk myself in and out of that one quite a few times. And eventually I went, well, you know, if I run for office and don't get it, my clients still like me, so I've got and B. And if I don't run for office, someone else will get it and I'll spend the next year, six years going, Wondering. I wanted that job and I would have, I think I would have done it just as well or better or differently. And so I have to have a go here. So I did. Hey, um, Alison, and I, and, you know, that's a good lesson for me. That's been what probably one of my toughest self-talk lessons that I have to keep reminding myself, I think. Alison, we have a, a lot of young, ambitious people who listen to this podcast, particularly with our partnership with Wimmark. And I know there are a lot of young ladies in Wimmark, young professionals who are who have their eye on their career, where they're headed. They love the idea of of being on a board. They want to understand more about what it takes to be on a board. They want to progress through the ranks in their organizations to the executive level. Can you talk a little bit about, firstly, what's the difference between working at the executive level within an organization and taking that step to a a board position? What are the different skills? What's the mindset that you had to change or that you went through when you made that leap yourself? Well, interestingly, I do still have both roles because, yeah. as I said at the start, I do still have a client. So I, I, I wear. I have two heads, perhaps, but um, so I still have both skills. 
So look, I, I would say that the in order to be a good board member, you need to have the more experience and skills and breadth of roles and opportunities you've had as an executive better prepares you to be a board member. Because when you're an executive, you will have a specific role. You'll have, you know, a leader that you're reporting to and you'll be part of a management team. You've got a skill set, you've got a team, you've got some responsibilities. And then as part of that executive team, you'll be across the whole organisation as well. When you sit on a board, the responsibility is to be, A, across looking from a helicopter across the whole organisation rather than diving down into the bits. And more importantly, thinking about the external things outside of the business that could be influencing and making sure and challenging whether they're being thought through as well. So I do think that unless you've got a good range of experience in business, it's hard to be a board member and bring anything to you unless you've got a really unique skill set and you're on the board for a specific unique reason. So the first thing I would say um, to women is don't jump into a board career too early because it's, um, despite everyone saying that role is getting harder and will people want it, it's a crowded space. There are a lot of people wanting to do it. And it's, you know, so the bar is quite high and the better and broader experience you've got as an executive, the better chance you've got of getting those roles, but also the better you will do them. So that would be my first comment, I think. Do you think being on a board for an ambitious person is the default ambition, the default destination, because they kind of see that as as high as it gets. That's that's where it all ends up if you do everything right. And if so, if, if that is the default ambition, is it for everyone? Should it be the default ambition? Well, look, I think if someone's really, really ambitious, then they should be aiming to be a CEO because when you're on a board, you're an influencer, not a doer. Right. And so if you're really ambitious, I think you're going to get frustrated and want to keep diving back in and getting it, rolling your sleeves up and getting on with it. So I do think that that's actually quite an important distinction mm. that people need to be really comfortable about. That yes, it's a high profile position if you're on certain companies. Yes, you'll be seen in the market as a seen person. So if those are your ambitions, then yes, I can see why a board is there. But if you're really ambitious, then I think you're best to go, well, I want to be the CEO and and to stay in that executive role because the CEO is the driver, the decision maker, the, you know, the person who is sets the light on the, the hill that everybody follows and is the driver of success and the real change agent, I think. Whereas when you're on the board, it's very much an influencing role. And if you're ambitious, you're just going to get frustrated, I think. The other thing I think that people do need to be aware of, particularly if they're jumping to a board role early in their career, is A, it can be quite lonely because you don't have a team. Mm -hmm. You come in Mm -hmm. and out of one or multiple organisations, but you spend a lot of time probably working from home or reading board papers and not so much engaging, which when you've had an executive career, I think, is quite a big change. And the other thing is, I think, you know, if people think, well, I can do that because I can do it part-time and fit it around kids, you really need to go into that with your eyes open because if you're on a board, it's a very responsible position. And if something happens or changes in that company, then you need to be prepared to step in and take whatever time it needs. And the other thing is you shouldn't underestimate when you're on boards, how hard you need to work to keep yourself up to date, relevant, experienced, and knowing what's going on in the industries of the boards you're serving on, 
in good corporate governance world in a whole range of legal, technical, financial areas that may be outside of the expertise you had as an as an executive. And so people who look on boards roles as a semi-retirement job or a part-time fit in around the kids, I think do so at their peril. Alison, you are a fountain of wisdom. I just was sitting back listening to all that. That is just so valuable for us to hear and, and for the listeners to hear. Now, you are on a board. You are the national chairman of KPMG, as I've already said, which is a huge role. A lot of people would would have that as their ambition or something like it as their ambition, but that is you right now. So from that position, what is your next ambition? What what are you eyeing off next? What's the future for you, Alison? <laughs> so David, I'm nine months into my role here. Mm-hmm. So my ambition is to do this job really well yeah, great. for the next few years. And I am not uh, at this stage thinking what next for me. I might do that four years into my six-year term. or. But uh, to, to me, my ambition at the moment is there's lots that I would like to do in this role. And, you know, it's an incredibly privileged position to be in and I love every minute of it but it comes with a big responsibility to the seven and a half thousand staff we have to inspire and lead them and it also comes with a big responsibility I think as the first female chair to be seen as a role model for other women that they can succeed if they do step up and put their hand up so there's probably the short answer is I'm not thinking about what's next. I'm thinking about what I need to achieve in this role because I'm pretty new in it and there's a lot to do here. Alison, that is a great place to leave it. I have so thoroughly enjoyed our conversation this morning. Thank you so much for taking time out of what I'm assuming is a pretty busy schedule. Well, there's plenty on, but that's all right. It's a pleasure to make time for these things. Thanks, Alison. Okay. And that was Alison Kitchen. Wisdom. Serious wisdom. I love the fact that not only has Alison had such a successful career, but she also has an acute understanding of the lessons she's learned, the quality she's nurtured, and the skills she's developed. But I guess you'd expect that, right? I'm pretty sure you don't bumble your way into a role like hers. Just three chunks of gold that Alison threw our way. Number one. If you don't have a go, you are no chance of success. Number two, gender equality is great, but what Alison most values is diversity of thought. And number three, if your career goal is to sit on a board, you must first gather as much executive experience across a breadth of roles as you can. Don't be a hurry to sit on a board. And I'll share the rest of the lessons I took from my conversation with Alison on the Lessons Learned page for this podcast. You'll find it along with the entire back catalogue of Team Guru podcasts on our website. That's teamswithans.guru slash podcast. Connect with me on Twitter, Facebook, SoundCloud or LinkedIn and join me for the next episode on this, my mission to bring to life the theory and principles of leadership. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now. Thank you.